Jeez, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Uh, this is one of those brilliant passages in the Bible. Uh, David comes and sort of wants to do something for God and then God just turns it around and lavishes stuff on David. So let's have a look at it, eh? After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. Well, that night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men of the earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that Yahweh will build a house for you when your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Well, Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh and he said, who am I, O Yahweh God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men, O Yahweh God. What more can David say to you for honouring your servant? For you know your servant, 
O Yahweh, for the sake of your servant and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, O Yahweh. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You made your people Israel your very own forever. And you, O Yahweh, have become their God. And now, Yahweh, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised, so it will be established, and that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, Yahweh Almighty, the God over Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So your servant has found courage to pray to you. Oh, Yahweh, you are God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Yahweh, have blessed it, and it will be blessed forever. Father, may we all be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we would live lives that are worthy of you, fully pleasing to you and bearing fruit in every good deed. And we pray in his name. Amen. Watching the royal week, the royal wedding uh, the other week, Cassie and I were struck by two things. Uh, number one, that sermon. You can read all about my views on that on the uh, church uh, bulletin. But uh, secondly, uh, Cassie observed and pointed this out to me that most of the congregation appeared not to be able to see what was going on up the front. I don't know if you realise that or not, but the, we. Uh, the, the kind of the shape of the building uh, along with uh, internal walls uh, within the, the building itself uh, would have made uh, th seeing things a little bit difficult. So if you did not receive an invite to the Royal Wedding, you were probably better off watching it on TV. There's no big surprises here, is there? Because uh, the idea of people actually engaging with the reading of the word and and the preacher, uh, and the idea of people engaging with one another in order to, you know, encourage and challenge each other and build each other up in Christ-likeness, that probably wasn't on the mind of the architect who designed the building. And that's the case with a lot of church buildings, isn't it? Uh, where buildings are designed so as to kind of fabricate or to... Uh, uh, to so that people will experience a, a sense of the presence of God. 
so the, the you know the cavernous structure the the soaring height the the dim lighting the religious furniture and decor along with the ritual uh, they all combine so that uh, to enter the building it feels like you're entering into the house of god uh, you you think that you experience god inside in a way that you wouldn't experience god if you're outside although if you're outside on the road you might be closer to god than you would be on the inside if you're not careful that's very different isn't it to uh, church buildings which are uh, specifically designed in order to facilitate good gospel ministry uh, which which make it easy for people to see and to hear and to engage uh, with uh, God's word and to fellowship with one another but we can see where the idea of this of the building as being the house of God comes from can't we because in the Old Testament there was a particular building where uh, God dwelt and where God's people would go in order to meet with him and of speaking of course of the temple in Jerusalem which had not been built at the time of King David and as we look at uh, 1 Chronicles which you might want to have opened up in front of you uh, we saw last week some of the issues that uh, King David had in terms of transporting the the Ark of the Covenant uh, from a town on the Philistine border up to uh, to Jerusalem uh, where he had erected a tent uh, in which this this box this Ark of the Covenant which uh, symbolized the presence and the rule of God uh, would be would be kept would be housed and so he built a tent in Jerusalem now, in today's passage we see that David now has concerns about the idea of a tent for the Ark of the Covenant and we see that in chapter 17 verse 1 where we're told that after David was settled in his palace that he said to Nathan the prophet here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent and Nathan replied to David well whatever you've got in mind just go and do it because God is with you and 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 that was his response that's just fair enough isn't it yeah, because if you might think if you think back to chapter 4 verse 14 verse 1 the king of Tyre which is a place in, within what we would call modern-day Lebanon, had sent David a gift, as kings do. And this was a gift of, uh, of some, uh, the, the very famous Lebanese uh, cedar logs, uh, a, t a team of stonemasons, a team of carpenters, uh, in order to build a luxurious palace for David. That's a nice gift, isn't it? wonder what strings were attached. Now David loved God and so now he, he has, he's got a bit of a problem of conscience because he's living in a palace while the ark, of the, the, the ark of God is living in a tent. Now for David um, <clears throat> this is now a matter of godliness because he, he wanted to do the best for God and so he raises this concern with the prophet Nathan. 
And clearly, it's implied in these verses uh, that uh, his proposal is to build a house for God, to which Nathan gives his approval. Um, Did you notice that Nathan actually got it wrong? Uh, Nathan, he's one of the truly good guys of the Old Testament. He's the prophet who um, spoke the truth. Uh, He uh, would take it up to the king and challenge the king when the king was doing wrong, as he did after David had committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba and gone and murdered Uriah, her husband. Uh, He's one of the good guys, but even he just assumed that this was going to be okay with God. So what did God think about it? Well, that night, God revealed to Nathan uh, what is as I think Brett mentioned, is one of the really great passages of the Old Testament. This is one of the very most significant passages of Scripture and God's answer to David's proposal is a clear no. And why? I mean, how long can the Ark of the Covenant live in a tent? Well, there's a few reasons. I'm going to talk about three reasons here. Uh, First of all, take a look at verses 3 through to 6. I'll read those for you. Uh, That night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I've moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Whenever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Um, Did God require this to be done? Did did God ask for it to be done? No, he says, I've never asked for this. And, And so if God, if David had continued to house the ark in a tent, that would not have been sinful. That would not have been dishonouring to God, uh, even if he himself was living in a palace. Because his heart was for God. And that's the critical issue, the issue of his heart. But he was going further than what God required. So that's the first reason. Secondly, in verses 7 through to 10, uh, God wants David to be reminded of the good things that God has done for David and the peace which he will bring to Israel. Uh, Let's just look at a few of those verses. Verse 9, he says, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. Now, these are are encouraging verses, aren't they? Would have been an encouragement to David. But why should this be a reason for David not building the temple? Perhaps it's because... The peace which God had promised had not yet quite been fulfilled. Um, Later on in chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles, in verses 8 and 9, 
David had received further revelation from God on this. Let me just read those verses to you. Verse 8, chapter 22. David says, But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. Now, on the surface, does it sound like God is saying to David that David's got blood on his hands, that he's guilty of some sin in this regard? Kind of sounds a bit like it, doesn't it? In this regard, David was not guilty of sin. He wasn't guilty of sin for going to war. Um, 1 Chronicles is quite clear that uh, in David's battles, in his wars, that David was doing God's work, that it was God who wanted the enemies of Israel to be driven out, that it was God who promised uh, to give victory, that it was God who was actually fighting, that it was God who gave those victories. Uh, In fact, in the kind of slab of scripture that I've allocated for today, uh, after God says no to David's plan in chapter 17, chapters 18, 19 and 20 are all about the wars that he had yet to fight, that he would now fight, so as to finally bring about the peace which God had promised Israel, the peace which Solomon enjoyed during his rule. That is, it's not because David was guilty of sin, it's not that he had blood on his hands, but rather that the promise to Abraham of God's people living in peace, in God's place, would actually first need to be fulfilled before this house of God, house of the Lord, would be built. Because thirdly, in verses 10 through to 14, there is now an intriguing twist. Because instead of David building a house for God, God promises to build a house for David. Have a look at the second part of verse 10 where God says, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. Uh, When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me. I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father And he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. You see that? Let's unpack that for a few moments, should we? And you think to yourself, well, God is promising here that he's going to build a house for David, but why would he do that? I mean, David's, you know, the, the... the very thing 
which started this dialogue in the first place is the fact that David's already living in a house, that he's already living in a palace. He doesn't need two... There's a play on words here. This is interesting. This is a play on words which actually works just as well in English as it did in ancient Hebrew. And, and that is that God's not promising to build David a palace. He's promising to, da- to build David a dynasty. Uh, when Megan got married the other week, she married the man who was sixth in line to the throne. I checked that out. Sixth in line to the throne. She now lives in a house. It's called Kensington Palace. Uh, but she married into a different kind of house than that, didn't she? She married into the house of Windsor, a, li- a lineage of monarchs, a royal dynasty. And David would be the very first king of a royal dynasty. It wasn't going to end with David. That's the point that's being made here. But this royal dynasty would not be like any other royal dynasty because unlike the house of Windsor, this dynasty, did you notice, it will never end. There are three things which God promises will last forever. In verse 12, the throne will last forever. Uh, In verse 13, God's love will never be withdrawn. God's love will be everlasting. And verse 14, the kingdom will be forever. Now, notice also in verse 12 that a house for God, that which David had wanted to build, uh, would in fact be built by David's son. So what we have here is, is two, two promises, really, if we could summarise it. Uh, two promises from God. Firstly, I will build a house for you, a dynasty. But secondly, one of your sons will build a house for me. Now, when we get to 2 Chronicles, uh, we will see that David's son uh, Solomon did in fact build a, a glorious temple uh, in which God was pleased for the Ark of the Covenant to dwell. However, both of these houses, that is the dynastic rule of David's descendants and the temple in Jerusalem, both of these houses would come to an end when the Babylonian army uh, besieged the city of Jerusalem and captured it. As if God's promises had failed. The last of David's descendants to sit on the throne was King Zedekiah, whom the Babylonians captured. Uh, they, when they captured him, they, they slaughtered his three sons right in front of him and then for good measure they plucked out his eyes so that his lasting memory would be the execution. Charming, isn't it? Charming. Whilst they plundered the temple and burnt it to the ground. You see what's happened there? Where is this everlasting dynasty? Where is this temple of God that is promised in these verses? Now, as I've mentioned in earlier sermons... Chronicles was written 
uh, much later after the events uh, which it describes. Uh, it's written uh, probably in the middle of the 4th century BC and it was written to Jewish people whose families had been through the exile and had long since re-established themselves back in the land, back in the ruins of that which once was. Um, they did build another temple, but it wasn't a shade on Solomon's temple. It was nothing by comparison. It was a great disappointment. And yet, in the book of Chronicles, this is the key passage. That is, this is the passage that the, the chronicler develops the rest of the book around. This is what he wants the people who are now living in this devastated land that they're trying to rebuild, this is what he wants them to know. That despite the fact that they are now not a kingdom, that there's no king sitting on the throne, that the Persians actually rule over them, the fact that there's this dismal temple that's nothing like... that the promises of God are still alive, that they still stand, that a son of David would rebuild God's temple and would establish God's kingdom forever. Now, <clears throat> I want you to notice <clears throat> in verse 13 what God says about David's son. He says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Are they familiar words? Look, I wonder if, can we go to the New Testament? Um, <clears throat> let's head to the book of Hebrews uh, for a moment, to Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first five verses of Hebrews 1. Uh, in my pew Bible, that's on page 846. That may be helpful to probably three quarters of you. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Let me just read this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So here the author to the Hebrews is specifically identifying Jesus as being the Son. The Son whom God promised in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 to David would be <clears throat> the, the Son of David, but would be God's Son and would be the ruler over God's everlasting kingdom. I will be his Father and he will be my Son. Notice also... Jesus actually is the temple. You see, uh, in uh, 
2 Chronicles chapter 7. Uh, when, when Solomon's temple was finally built and was, was dedicated, do you know what happened? At that? They had a ceremony. Do you know what happened at that ceremony? Well, we'll look at this in a little while's time as we get through the series, but the glory of God actually came down and filled the temple physically. There was fire came down onto the temple, which didn't burn it up. There was glory that was shining from within the temple so that the priests could not actually enter inside the temple and the people of God outside just fell face down on the ground and worshipped. It's an amazing situation. And here in verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. (laughs) The sun, the the glory that filled the temple of Solomon is the glory of that radiates from the sun. Uh, You want to get to know God? Well, God's majesty, God's power, God's all that God is, you'll find in Jesus. Notice also that the functions of the temple, that is, priests offering up sacrifices for sins, has been fulfilled by Jesus who in verse 3, we're told, provided purification for sins by his sacrifice. And through his resurrection and ascension, we're told, has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What's that saying about him? Well, it's from heaven. That is from where he now rules forever. You see... Satan has been defeated. Satan has no power over Jesus and over his rule. And therefore, God's kingdom can never end. Because the opponent has been vanquished by Christ through his death and his resurrection. Now, uh, in the second half of 1 Chronicles 17, um, David... uh, David was so overwhelmed by this promise to God that he, 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 he just prayed and he thanked God for what had been promised because he believed it. He wouldn't have understood it. He wouldn't have envisaged what the kingdom would be like, but he trusted God at his word. Now, you and I can envisage what this kingdom is like, can't we? Um, Kings and queens these days, they don't have any real power. Um, They are ceremonial. And we kind of like the ceremony, the pomp and the pageantry, don't we? Um, Cassie, as a citizen of Malaysia, has a king. Uh, We didn't even know who the king was until just a week or two ago when he finally had to do some work and... and, uh, uh, and, and had to swear in a new government for the first time in like ever. <laughs> we didn't even know who he was. But back in the day when kings actually ruled, they had subjects who obeyed them. And today, there are countless people who obey Jesus. There are millions of people, all kinds of people from every part of the planet who called Jesus their king. 
2,000 years on, friends, and this kingdom is stronger than ever. This kingdom is growing. Jesus is the longest reigning monarch in the world. And it's not looking like it's going to end anytime soon. But God's promise to David was that his son, that David's son would build a house for God. And Jesus has done that, hasn't he? Actually, he's still doing it. The only reason that you and I can name Jesus as our king is because Jesus has not left us alone. That God has poured out his spirit to to change us and to dwell in us. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22, and note the mistake of the Bible reference on your outlines, Ephesians 2 verse 22, the Apostle Paul says that as as the gospel was preached and as people trusting in Jesus as their king, that we are actually being built together to be a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That we are the temple, that God dwells within us. One time, uh, whilst visiting Melbourne, I was walking down the street and I saw a cathedral. I I don't know which cathedral it was, what denomination, doesn't matter. But I thought, I'm going to go inside. But the door was open. I'm going to go inside, I'm going to have a poke around. See what it's like inside. And as I did, I thought that I was the only one there. It felt eerie. It felt a bit otherworldly. As, of course, it was designed to do. And I saw this section up at the front, kind of like their equivalent to where I'm standing now, which looked really kind of special and sacred. It had this big kind of <coughs> solid table there and it had a rail across the front to keep people out. And I thought, I'm going to go there. <coughs> Had a look around and <clears throat> go there and see what happens. And, <clears throat> and I walked into that area, and as I did, I kid you not, I heard a deep voice say, Do not walk there. I thought, Strike, maybe my theology is wrong after all. <laughs> turned, out, turned out it was the cleaner, he just mopped the floor. Uh, he wanted me to go there. True story. <laughs> Friends, God does not dwell in a building. He dwells in us. We are God's temple. So that God's grace and his mercy, that God's glory, his very presence shines through us as we love and obey Jesus, as we name him as our King. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your faithfulness to your covenantal promise. We thank you for these promises to David and that through uh, the issue of the building of a temple for you, that we now understand more clearly who Jesus is and who we are in him. 
Father, we pray that we would be people who, uh, who bow the knee to King Jesus. We thank you that we will live under his rule forever. And we pray that uh, through us that others might see his glory as we seek to live lives that honour you. In Jesus' name. Amen.